Hello, beautiful people. I am Rania Salah, and this is my podcast, Ish Matters. Here, we talk about things that matter. Everything ranging from psychology to politics, self-development, and difficult conversations. We are relaxed, unedited, and unrehearsed. But it is through discomfort that we learn and grow. So get comfortable. We might get a little uncomfortable. Traumatized people become stuck, stopped in their growth because they can't reintegrate new experiences into their lives. Jessica Stern wrote, Some people's lives seem to flow in a narrative. Mine has many stops and starts. That's what trauma does. It interrupts the plot. Today's episode is going to be about trauma, so trigger warning for that. But before we get started, hello beautiful people. Welcome back. I'm sorry for the long break. I always do this. But I'm back and I have something that has changed my life and I want to share it with you. And I'm joined again by a very, very special guest, perhaps, perhaps the most special guest I'll have on this podcast to discuss this really important topic with me. Rand? Hi there. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoy the podcast. They will. <laughs> because we will. All right. So we recently read... Rand and I, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Treatment of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Do you pronounce it like that? I have only, I've never said it out loud. I've only heard it in my head, and I think that's pretty close. Okay, Bessel van der Kolk. Um, this book has been a bestseller for a very long time, and in it he draws upon over four decades of experience studying the impact of trauma on childhood brain development and emotion regulation. Um, he also has more than 150 academic papers about the unconventional methods for treating trauma, um, which will be in part two or three that Rand and I will record, because this one is just going to be about the things we've learned from part one of the book, because it the book itself is split into two parts, which is understanding trauma and how it affects the body. Um, all right, where do you want to start, Rand? I think... I, my instinct is to start with a simple, if you're going to engage in this book, be kind to yourself, mm-hmm. to take time, to stop when you need to stop and start when you need to stop. It has fundamentally changed me about the way I think about myself and about things that I weren't even naming as trauma before. And it's not like this has created a fantasy for me. It's just like it gave words to things that were almost nonverbal for me and it's really benefited. But at the same time, digging up some of those things has caused me moments where I've had to pause and like give myself another day to think because it was so like I find myself like holding my hand over my heart when I read it or like Mm -hmm. cuddling myself when I read it, you know, but, but do I think it's a, a great book and I'm so happy that it exists and as a teacher, but like when you learn great things, sometimes there's a reaction. Absolutely. You know, and I and that's the only thing that I would like to say at first that it is beautiful and confronting. Very confronting. That's the right word. Um, I think it is because one, it redefines trauma in in many many ways, and it kind of puts science and evolutionary explanations to all the complicated diagnoses we throw around. We go and 
a psychiatrist looks at us for seven minutes and throws around PTSD, depression, dissociation. Take this med. Take this med. And we don't really understand those fully. And, and what I love about this book is it breaks it down in a scientific but then compassionate way. The compassion is the thing. The compassion is the thing. And I think that comes from the science. It, what it digs at is, or what it reveals is that the things we experience are normal human reactions to things, normal animal reactions to things. And if we kind of take a macro view of this, we stop thinking about how broken we are or how broken our loved one is. Instead, we look at science and we're like, wait, this is, this is completely normal. I don't need to be medicated for this. This was my body doing its thing, making sure it survives. And this happens to a lot of people. And before we dig deeper into this, I want to talk about the word trauma over here. Because we think of trauma as we, we just jump to acute trauma. And acute trauma is rape. Um, also, I'm, I'm so sorry before I said that. I, I am going to put out a trigger warning. Um, this episode will contain talk about rape and abuse and suicidality. So if you are not in a place in life to handle this just yet, it's okay. Click out. There are many other episodes you can listen to. All right. But acute trauma. So extreme abuse, neglect, domestic violence, pandemics, accidents, natural disasters, war. Um, and acute trauma is very common, a lot more common than we think. And I have a few statistics I want to bring up really quick. But just here in America, one in five Americans has been sexually molested as a kid. One in four has been beaten by a parent. One in four grew up with an alcoholic relative, and one in eight witnessed their mothers being beaten. And that's just in America, and that's a CDC report from, I believe, 2018. So this has increased, and so acute trauma is very common, but it's not the only kind of trauma I want to talk about here. And van der Kolk, he addresses trauma not as trauma, but traumatic stress. Because traumatic stress can be a buildup of little t traumas, like chronic neglect, chronic emotional abuse, the little things that build up in the body. And what this book really says is the body is the score sheet. Instead of questioning the patient who is traumatized, instead of asking them about their trauma, you can actually kind of see what happened to them by just observing their body. And what this book urges us to do is look at their body, look at the way they hold themselves, their pain in their shoulders, in their back, um, like, I, I have a list here of, um, I have a quote, and Vanderkolk writes, After trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. Energy is now focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their life. These attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including digestive issues like spastic colon, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, forms of asthma, in fact, traumatized children have 50 times the rate as asthma as their non-traumatized peers. I couldn't believe that when I read that. Yeah. Like, the relationship was so strong. Yeah. And so, now that we know that trauma is not just these acute traumas, and we have this compassion going in that this is a normal human experience and it's actually a lot more common than we think it is, Let's talk, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about, did you, did you ever think that maybe 
the pain in your shoulders or your digestive issues or things like that was related to your trauma? And how did this change that for you? No, I've never, I never thought about that. Like I could, I could, I could easily get to a place where like overeating or something like some sort of soothing mm. behavior, but in terms of like physical manifestations, no, I've never really considered that. And I don't think I would be open to that level of vulnerability historically from the era that I'm from. You know what I mean? Yeah. But one thing about trauma, when we say that, like and you, you've laid out some good things, the idea in, that he lays out about it being some pain you must endure without any sense of being able to escape it, that you must basically choose to remain within that, that helplessness. Yeah. That's the part that really defines all the fears and conflict inside of me. Mm. Like in my case, he was a family member, right? But this is also the peak family member where you feel like you must love them. Like, how could you not love your mom? Well, uh, it's it's that it's almost like cognitive dissonance. No, it's it's a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, what's interesting is remember that th there's a part in the book about the dogs in the flood. So Pavlov did the experiment on classical conditioning in the the dog salivating. But what happened unexpectedly is that. It, the 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 area where he put the cages and the dogs it flooded and these dogs couldn't do what animals do in danger which is fight flee. flight or feet flee yeah. they couldn't do either of these things so there was a learned helplessness and as children being abused or watching their parents be abused or being in that kind of situation you can't do any of these things either you can't leave your child you're dependent on the abuser you can't fight your child you can't fight your abuser who is a parent and you can't you can't really do anything so there is this learned helplessness and you talked about eating and he writes in his book about so he says in response to their trauma and in coping with the dread that persisted long afterward the patients had learned to shut down the brain areas that transmit the visceral feelings and emotions that accompany and define terror. So if you experience terror and you can't do anything about it, your brain decides to shut down. But there's a trade-off because the trade-off is those very same areas that are responsible for registering that terror that you want to shut down are the same ones that are f the foundation for self-awareness. And if you're not self-aware, if you lose your sense of self, your sense of body, then you start to do things like that. You start to not know when you're full and eat more or not know when you're hungry and eat less, in my case, for example. And when you lack that self-awareness and sense of self, you deaden your capacity to fully feel alive also. So it is a trade-off. It's like, yes, you shut down to the terror to protect yourself, but you also shut down to the joys of life, which bring you purpose and meaning. Like... Enjoying a coffee with you, Rand, or a walk, or the flowers or the leaves in fall. You shut down those things too. There's a cost for choices that we make when, in terms of pain management. Of course, it happens all the time. Less of a choice, I'd say. It's not a choice, but like, that's true. And you know mm -hmm. what? I have this habit and a frame of mind where I, the things that happen to me, I've, because I need to make sense of them. Yeah in my mind and I'm a smart person so I can find creative ways to make sense of things so I build these stories and I take responsibility for things right the book one of the, the most confronting things about the book is all the places where I realized 
that my story that I told myself about my control, about what I could do or what I couldn't do or how I could have done this, it all dissolves. And then it just leaves you with raw vulnerability and maybe some self-compassion. I wasn't really expecting that, but like, not feeling sorry for myself, but realizing there was very little that I could have done. Stop taking responsibility so much for things that weren't in your control. Yeah, no, that's that's what I mean. I need to take control. I need to be in control. But really, the book has made me go, dude, you may need that, but it wasn't true. Yeah. And that alone has changed me. The, the, because it's made me more comfortable with being vulnerable. You know what it helped me do recently? And we've talked about this. But it helped me stand up for myself when people projected this idea of like you're so broken beyond love like you are no longer lovable you're you said a word yesterday that i laughed at you for viable that's what i felt like i wasn't viable anymore yeah i, for felt, loving. Like, I felt like that a long time i still because i people, can wave i can sort of phase into there if easily if i'm triggered yeah but this book both the idea that this is a normal human reaction to trauma a normal physiological reaction and also that because the brain is so plastic, and this is all happening in the brain, and plastic is neuroplasticity is the ability for your brain to change and adapt. adapt. Um, but just like it adapted back then, it can adapt again now. And it will remain plastic for a very long time. And it allowed me to stand up for myself. Like, hey, actually, a long time ago maybe, or before this book, not even a long time ago, a very short bit of time ago <laughs> if someone had told me that it would have just stuck with me like yeah I am broken because I overreact to things and I blow up and we'll talk about the science behind that in a second but all of these things about me that make me too unstable to love or too unstable to commit to that would have killed me but I mean this book it killed me for a second and then I came back and I was like wait 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 no do you feel right now like you are still too broken to be loved? No. Do you feel like you have the habits of someone who feels like that? I do, Me too. but like then I have these moments where I snap out of it and I say, no. I think that's no. the power of this book. It's you know giving why? me that choice. Because I have the capacity to love even people who seem broken. I mean, my siblings, sorry siblings if you're listening, I love you so very much. But my siblings, by definition of all these people who tell me I'm broken, are broken as hell. Sorry, again, sorry siblings, I love you so much. I think but broken, I, we, should, we should, yeah, just for a second. Take out the no, connotation. From, broken. Broken okay, is like broken. a word I'm trying to move um, away from. I felt that way a long time too, but I want to change it. Their brain is still operating under the consequences of trauma. Great. Great. So if I can love them so deeply and they can love me so deeply, then these people are wrong, okay? And all it takes, all that really takes, that love, is an effort to understand why it is you are behaving the way you are. And understand that behind that, behind those things, the overreactions, the blowing up, the hesitation, the fear, is actually a really great person who's just in pain and has been hurt, and it is not their fault. And they can't let it go. They can though, they can. Eventually. Eventually. But like in those moments, I think- In I'll, those moments. In those moments, before this 
book before this growth. You know, I was just trying to be comfortable. And like that was very narrowly defined by avoiding certain hot places and cold places and mm -hmm. things like that. And you know, we've talked about it like in my life now, I want more. More, not and, again. And like, not again. Not and again. like, I have, I have well-worn territory of being comfortable, you know? Yeah. But it feels like confining now. Well, because the comfortable you've built was as that traumatized kid. You self-soothed. Yeah. Which is, but now you're safe and your brain is kind of coming out of that of like, the danger is gone and you're still behaving as though you're still in danger, but... It, I didn't realize it until I had more information though. Like that's the thing that's changed me about the book. It's caused a shift. Here's the thing. There, there's a quote in there. The physical trauma, or more precisely the memory of trauma, acts like a foreign body which long after its entry must continue to be regarded as an agent still at work. The memory of trauma is always still at work. The dissociations, the little bits of images and sounds and smells and the little triggers, those are always still at work until you resolve it. And I don't know how much personal information you would like to reveal, but I don't think you resolved your trauma, I think the trauma just died, and... I mean, it kind of withered on the vine a little bit. But But you, I, I have found ways around it and strategies, but... But that's not through it. It's not. I fully acknowledge that, and until recently, I I felt functional, mm. right? Mm. Like, is that enough? Well, I mean, it was. It was. It was enough. I mean, that, that was my highest standard. Like, coming from a place of long-term trauma without dealing with it in a certain way. You know, I became functional and that made me feel safe and that was the only thing I wanted. I didn't imagine much beyond that. Like, just getting to the place of like, repeatable survival was yeah. my highest goal. Yeah. And you know, like, and so I didn't count a lot of things that I was doing and things like that about what longer-term effects those, those choices, because like, we make these choices about our pain and they come out in other places, but it's like you got rid of the main problem. Yeah. And you just kind of ignore all the places that it resurfaces because it's functional. Yeah. I mean, think about it like this. You, someone puts your head underwater and you're drowning and then you get pulled back up and someone tries to have a conversation with you. <laughs> as soon as you get pulled back up, you're not going to engage. You're just going to gasp. You're going to gasp and gasp and gasp and hyperventilate and try to get as much air in as you can because you're terrified of being dunked in again. It's not even terrified. It's your body has needs. Your body has needs. That's it's the thing. It's I priorities. I'm going to keep correcting you when you say choice. We don't, we didn't make choices. And I think, I know, you know what? I know, like, Let's just get this brain part over with right now. Fine, Let's I'll talk about the brain. Let's okay. talk about the brain. You talk about the brain. You're going to come in too. Let's go parts of the brain. Okay. First of all, we have our rational cognitive brain, and that's actually the youngest part of the brain. It only occupies 30% of the area inside of our skull. And that's what's responsible for like goals and time management and future and things like that. But really what's at play, the boss, the bosses, two parts of the brain, are the much older evolutionary brains. And they are responsible for registering pain, pleasure, safety, excitement, longing, bodily signals like needing to pee or eat or sleep. Um, and 
when those parts of the brain are malfunctioning, okay, then we have an issue. Why? Let's talk about danger. I <laughs> like how you're just staring at me right now. <laughs> okay, danger. So sensory information arrives through everything we have, the eyes, the nose, the hands, ears, and it goes to our thalamus, which is located in our limbic system. And our limbic system, the mammalian brain, because all mammals have it, is responsible for registering danger and navigating danger in different ways, whether it be emotional danger or physical danger. Um, and its main, its main function is to ensure your survival. So when the thalamus takes in those, those sensory bits of information, the noises, the smells, it creates this soup almost, if it's the cook, he describes it as, it creates this meal, which is a coherent experience that it transmits to right. two parts. Your amygdala, which is part of your evolutionary older brain, and your frontal lobes. But the thing is, the amygdala is faster. By milliseconds, but that matters a lot for it people with trauma. It does matter a lot. Because, have you ever experienced... Let's talk about this. Have you ever experienced... Um, what's a danger to you? I'm trying to think. Because I'm trying to think of, like, for example, someone who has been through... A, has experienced a, a really bad natural disaster, a fire. Okay? So... They're sitting down, they don't know a barbecue is happening next door, they smell fire. And your sensory information goes to your amygdala, and your amygdala is so much faster, those milliseconds are still so much, that it already tells your body, oh my god, danger, fight or flight, your cortisol increases, your adrenaline increases, your heart rate, your blood pressure, the rate of your breathing, your, your body is ready to go. I've experienced this. And then, by the time your frontal lobes kick in, and they're like, wait, no, that's just a barbecue that our neighbor's having. You're already sweating it and hyperventilating. It, it doesn't matter. It, it's too late. Now, for a person without trauma, for a normal functioning brain, the frontal lobes can really quickly intervene and assess the situation and be like, no, we're fine. That's literally just a barbecue. Okay, but for a person with trauma, the amygdala begins to react so much faster and so much more intensely and for longer periods of time. And so this increases the likelihood of misinterpretations, but the continuous experience of danger despite realizing it's a misinterpretation. And so what this looks like is that, for example, um, I was walking down the street the other day in Clarendon and a homeless man came up to me, came up very, very close to me and almost touched me. And yeah, this is a scary experience, right? But for maybe someone without a trauma related to, to men and things like that, they would, you know, walk past it and a little bit later, they, they would kind of not feel anything. They'd be like, okay, I'm safe now. Like I got to the cafe with my friend. It's that cool. was inconvenient. That was inconvenient. Like, why did he come up to me so close? For me, it caused a very prolonged nervous breakdown with shaking and hyperventilation and not being able to sleep and very anxious in a spiral and that could have continued for days and a long time ago that kind of thing did continue for days me too and that is what happens when your when your nervous system is malfunctioning when your danger system is always on high alert when everything is a trigger and a trigger that causes a visceral bodily reaction, 
not oh my god this sucks and getting sad a literal response to flee or fight or freeze and if you can't do any of these things because of the learned helplessness you may turn it inward you may shut down you may look for drugs to shut it down you may look for a dissociation and this is something i want to talk to you about dissociation we often think of dissociation as when i told you the other day i was dissociating you thought dissociation was just like being not here yeah yeah which i thought it was too until i learned from this book that dissociation can look like a lot of different things that take you away from the reality right now from what's happening and and he says dissociation is the essence of trauma it can be hyper focus an ability to focus an obsession with something an addiction all of these things are dissociations what you're doing is you're taking yourself out of the right now of all of these intense unbearable visceral gut-wrenching bodily reactions and and putting yourself in something else because if you're so consumed with that you can't think of these things and this is one response to trauma so the the overreactiveness but there is another response the shutting down I, I don't experience the shutdown one. Yeah. I'm a fleer. Like yeah. I have a built like I feel like a juggernaut. When I need to go, there's almost nothing that can stop me from going. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we need more content in this way, but like, you know, I had experience in terms of misinterpreting signals, right? And yeah. how it affects you. Like, I'm home for Christmas. There are children in my family that are screaming in delight at Christmas gifts. But I'm in another room and I don't see that. I just hear the shrieks mm. and I the world started turning yellow and my vision started vibrating and it was taking me back to a time when I was probably that screaming child and yeah in that moment I was misinterpreting all the signals and I was near like I felt very close to losing consciousness and you know what there's an interesting part about what you just said these elements that you just mentioned the elements of of hearing that and feeling the the terror they're described as re-traumatizing yourself and that's how it felt and, and there's a reason for this he writes if the elements of the trauma are replayed again and again the accompanying stress hormones engrave those memories even more deeply Ordinary day-to-day -day life becomes less compelling and it becomes harder to feel the joys and aggravations of everyday life Because in many ways the flashbacks and the reliving are much worse than the trauma itself Because the trauma has a beginning and an end. end. It's over. But the flashbacks don't the little triggers don't and you just get re-traumatized again and again and again and again and That's why we find so many people with trauma would much rather dissociate with a drug, a substance, a hyper-focus. I mean, I can think back to times in my life where I didn't even know I was dissociating for, like, years. I, I'm afraid, based on my new information here, that it's the same for me. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel a little stunted because I might have spent a lot of time in that place. You know, it's so funny because I'm thinking back to conversations I had with my father, and he would ask me, he's like, why do you keep 
going to the extremes. Why can't you just work and work normal hours or go to school and be normal about it? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, like I really can't figure it out. But if I do it, I have to do it all a lot, all the time. If I work, it's going to be 16 hours a day until my feet hurt and swelled and I'm bleeding. And if I'm going to go to school, it's going to be overachieving 4.0, even higher than a 4.0. Push, 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 push. And it's like, yeah, these things yield great results like money and grades. But it's, it's not about that. I lose myself in it. And that's the point. I didn't know that I was actively trying to lose myself in it. But I did. And this just blew my mind because I'm like, what if I've just been dissociating my whole life? I don't know. Like, I have to consider the same things. And I can be incredibly obsessive at times over, mm. like, in terms of my journey and feeling better. I think there have been people, we brought other people in my life in that would say, like, it seemed like it was too much at times that I was really trying, working. I wasn't letting it go. I was staying in those moments through an effort that I thought was getting me out. A lot of things trauma victims do are paradoxical. Yeah, it's like repeating kind of kept me tied to it. Like, but that's another thing we do, or at least that's very common in trauma victims, is that we... We try to re-expose ourselves to similar things as the trauma to, in an effort to desensitize ourselves to them. So, I think know, that works. Like I, it had worked. Yeah, but not really. Not in a, no, not in an ideal way. No. Here's but. here's the thing. There's there's um I forget what page it's on, but there's a whole couple of pages about how he observed through his work with trauma victims that PTSD soldiers only feel alive in combat zones. They actively go and do life-threatening things because that's the only way they can feel human and alive. And how people who have endured a lot of physical abuse will often self-harm and start cutting their wrists. And, and it's like, and then people who, this is very, very common actually, and we need to talk about this. People who have a history of being raped or molested, a lot of them, either go the way of being feared of being touched, like they just are terrified of being touched, or they become hypersexual, okay? And all of these things, the soldiers going and doing very risky things, the abused children going and cutting themselves, and the people who have been raped going and becoming hypersexual, you think, you, it's all so much, so you think that if I keep doing it, if I keep reintroducing myself to that thing, it will become so familiar that it won't be such a big trauma. But what Vanderkolk says in his book is that's not the way at all. He actually disagrees completely with, with exposure therapy. I saw that. That's wrong. What we should do is learn to feel alive in different ways, reconnect with our bodies. Right. Like This is something that is haunting me because yeah. I'm of the type, don't touch me. And at the same time, I know from like a human part, like that's, I need that. Yeah. <sighs> oh. Because you <laughs> I got pause for a second just thinking about it. You don't trust your body. No. Because you don't, you, I mean, why would you trust your body if, why would your body trust you? And why would you trust your body if for so long your body has been sending you signals that you couldn't react to? It's telling you flee and you don't flee. It's telling you fight and you don't fight. It's telling you stop eating, but you eat. 
It's telling you, go take a walk, but you stay. It's telling you, go smell a flower, but you get high. Your body will stop sending you signals, and you will stop listening to your body. I have stopped listening to my body, but I, that's changed right now. It's, it's changed. Yeah, it's you're changing re- now. Yeah. You're, you know what you, you've been doing? You've been talking to your body again. You're like, hey, old friend, let's talk again. I'll listen. You listen. Start sending signals again. Well, I mean, this helped. This thing helped. Yeah. But but I think that's that's what it is. I, I think that I agree with his idea of a new kind of therapy. That's not talk therapy. It's not exposure therapy. And it's not medicine. It's how do we start trusting our bodies and enjoying life in them? I did pick on something I would like to talk about, and I, I apologize if I'm adding something, but because of the way I've disassociated with, from my body in a certain way, like I've kind of want I just live above my Adam's apple, mm. like for a long time. In your head. Yeah, I'm just in my head. And he talks about how, because of that disconnection, like to be touched yeah. while you're receiving information pulls your body back into it. Mm. And I had an experience with something called neuro-linguistic programming where someone put their hand on my shoulder while they were taking me through a certain, you know, verbal exercise. And I got to say, it was incredibly impactful. And I had no idea that I had separated myself so much from my physicality that even that simple hand on shoulder would mean so much to me and cause information to seep lower and deeper into my physical self. I really like that. And you know, you said you've you've been living above your Adam's apple, right? Kind of. Yeah, when we so yeah, when we say we're so in our heads, I I want to bring up a passage that is going to help you forgive yourself. If an organism is stuck in survival mode, all of its energies are focused on fighting unseen enemies, which leaves no room for nurture, care, love for humans. And this means that as long as the mind is defending itself against invisible assaults, our closest bonds are threatened, along with our ability to imagine, play, learn, and pay attention to other people's needs. I, I used to walk around with my headphones on in college, just imagining targeting every person. Like, I, I admitted it to one of my friends one time, back in the time of like, Nine Inch Nails or aggressive music like that. I would, I can see how some things happened in our world in terms of this and violence. And that I would just drive, I would just go around and I was like, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go. Like different perceptions of mm. threat that were happening so quickly. Like in my mind, I'm targeting them and finishing them. Like, and it's all just trying to stay safe. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's more than just in your head because of something called the, um, the pneumogastric nerve. Okay, you think this is all in your head, but do you ever just feel in your body just threatened by, by unseen enemies, if you will? And it's because that pneumogastric nerve is actually the connection between your mind, your thoughts, your gut, your stomach, your throat. So that gut-wrenching feeling, that punch in the gut, your chest caving in, those vis- visceral sensations are real. They're not metaphorical. They are real because you have a nerve that is transmitting that. Irritable bowel syndrome as a cause of traumatic stress is because 
your intestines are literally clenching on themselves. And this is all news to me. Like, really, in the book, like, to know that my gut has intelligence. Your gut... That's new. That's where a lot that's of your, your hormones are produced. So if you think about um, people with gut issues, it's kind of like chicken or the egg over here, and it's, a, it's a, like a loop. So people with chronic stress have really bad guts. And people with really bad guts don't produce enough serotonin because that's where serotonin is produced. Right, I'm getting that now. And serotonin is the happy hormone. So then they become less happy. And then they get... They want to eat more. They want to eat more. But that ruins their gut even more because their gut is not functioning. And then you're stuck in this loop of your hormones are all out of whack all of the time. You have elevated cortisol, less dopamine, less serotonin, which leads you to do things that only decrease them. And we start becoming dependent on things and substances and food and people and activities to... And your schedule gets messed up. Right. And like... Explain that. What do you mean? Well, I've been recently becoming aware of like my need to be alone would cause me to stay up really late when I was living. Like if I was living in a group, I needed my alone time to feel safe. So I would stay up beyond everyone else until like one o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then talking about hormones and the body's intelligence like now i'm seeing blue light till three o'clock in the morning because i'm looking at screens mm. and like my body's used to waking up at a certain time and doing things in terms of my hormones and its functions the housekeeping stuff about when you go to bed when you've seen the sun when you've seen the sun go down and the longer lengths of light like everything gets out of sync and gets much harder and right. per particularly about food like now you're hungry at weird times weird times your body's not expecting food and like the intelligence of the body, I've disregarded it my entire life. And to, to start to understand it now through this book, I can tell that it has changed me. You know, these are things that I don't think developed all of a sudden in your adulthood. Because like these things we learn as kids. Like, we learn as kids how to... We're born knowing how to listen to our body. You look at infants, they cry, they get fed, they stop crying, they go to sleep, they cry when they need to be changed, they get changed, they feel comfortable. That all feels really sleep. obvious, right? Right, but then what if your needs were constantly neglected or your boundaries were pushed as a kid? You don't know anything else, you're so confused because here's this caregiver what who's supposed threat? to respond to your needs, who's actually either withdrawn or a danger and both of these things are just as bad as one another <laughs> if they are actually a study found that emotionally withdrawn mothers caused more long-lasting damage than abusive abusive ones really right because abusive ones is it's really bad still but it is still an interaction emotionally withdrawn ones neglect complete and utter neglect where the person does not respond to your needs at all when you need it most that is so dangerous and the reason is because um i expect that now so we need so as children we learn about the world by like moving grabbing things crawling like discovering what happens if we cry if we laugh if we scream what happens then but what if and we need the confidence that someone's there if we need them and is going to listen to us cry and stuff because we're kind of helpless right we're we are we're not kind of we are we're okay. infants right so but if we don't have that confidence, we'll never do these things. And if we don't do these things as infants, we don't know how to do these things. We don't know 
when to cry. We don't know when to scream. We don't know when to stay silent. We don't know when to imagine, play, be creative. And, and what is life without the creativity that relieves your boredom, your soothing to alleviate your pain, your laughter to experience pleasure? Without these things, you have no hope. You have no envision, like you have no ambition. You can't plan. You can't hope. You can't think future because you, yeah, you can't, you can't even make goals. I just had to make an aside for fun. Yes. Like if you were to ask any of my friends that I've had for 30 years about me and making plans. Yeah. I don't believe in the future. Okay, see, that's probably because... I can't do something in September of 2023. That's not normal. It's like, I don't even know if that exists. But that's healthy. Planning for the future is healthy. And your inability to do it, okay, like, we just had this conversation before I hit record. I should be treating my conditions because I want children someday, but if I can't think that far ahead... If I'm so stuck right now, because I don't even know what's going on right now, how am I supposed to do that? And if I can't plan, then how am I supposed to prepare myself for a future? I understand. And like, here's the thing of being older, you know, that's one thing that's great about us. Like in terms of comparisons, like you can't solve those problems now. Like you can, no, I can solve some of my problems now, but like, but when it comes around, say childbirth or your physicality, that you need your body for these things, like. You can't solve it later. Like, you don't have that choice. Like, I have to solve it now, but that takes looking at the future and that takes a confidence that there, a hope. Is there a, a future worth having? Right. That's why I'm taking care of my body. Well, now. with a map of the world based on trauma and abuse and neglect, like, our main goal right now, as you said, as we've said throughout this episode, is repeated survival. Yeah. We wake up with the sole intention of surviving the day. <laughs> historically for sure I think I'm changing that now but like yes very much so most of my life 30 years easy you know it says here trauma victims when anticipating rejection ridicule and deprivation they are reluctant to try new options certain that they will lead to failure this lack of experimentation traps them in a world of fear isolation and scarcity where it is impossible to welcome the very experiences that might change the basic, their basic perspective. My father said this when I visited him. He said, you're so in your head, you won't even allow yourself to do something to make yourself better, to make yourself feel better. Because we'd be sitting there and I'd be crying hysterically for no reason. And well, there's a reason, but not an obvious one, an invisible danger that I'm still running from, that he can't see and I can't see, and right. I can't put my finger on and be like, there it is, there it is. Right? Because it's the little bits and pieces of flashbacks from things that already ended. They happened and they ended. So these invisible dangers, and he'd be like, let's go bowling. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And he couldn't understand. He's like, why are you saying no to all of the things that might make you feel better? Like seeing your cousins, like going bowling, like going out for ice cream. And he's right. He's right. You become so reluctant to do these things because you're going to say, well, that's not going to make me feel better. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. You're not willing to explore. You're not willing because you're afraid. You're stuck in fear. Can this relate to my testing obsession? Your testing obsession. Remember how like, we talked about like, numbers. I need to test again. Yeah. Like you need to try it in this way. You need to try it in this way. You need to try it. Like that's the part of me that's coming out now that didn't really exist. Part of it is from work, honestly, from philosophies I've built there. But like also... 
as an explorer who needs a lot of safety, doing little bits of something to just reach out and touch and not get burnt. Yeah. I mean, like to learn how far to understand that it's safe. I think that's the exact process I'm in right now is like learning a new version of what is safe that allows me to have a full life and explore that. But it's, I'm going slowly because I kind of have to. It's yeah. like I've been cr crunched down for so long. Like I would, I would like to think that not spending so much time, like working on it now in an earlier time would have left me with more whatever but I don't really know I don't get to practice this life like this is it yeah but I'm happy about this now and that I have been able to see a future where I can still be happy and I think that's why I've reinvested my in my body and you know walking and other things that are happening now is because like oh I mean I can have some life yeah like something that like yeah. I choose yeah up until now I didn't really take responsibility for that or believe in it and like I can see from the book that like not all of that was much I could do. Like a lot of things that happened to me changed when I was like pre-verbal. And yet I want to use words to like frame my consciousness and my experience. But like it's not completely accurate. Yeah. And maybe we just need to like go talk to someone <laughs> like a professional. I don't know. I, I feel like that has helped me. I've gone to therapy. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I've gone to therapy for a while. And I, I take, but I didn't even know what questions to ask. You know, that's the thing. That's the thing. It was like therapy, all surface stuff. Therapy like... can only work. And that's my thing with talk therapy. My most successful moments in therapy were not ones where the therapist told me something. It's one where I told the therapist something. But I think that's the point. Like, you talk enough, you hear your own wisdom. Yeah. But also, like, you understand yourself better and that helps. I agree with Vanderkolk. And and I'm coming to agree more. And In fact, the other day I was just sitting outside and I'm like... I was really depressed and I took myself outside and immediately felt better. And I was like, wait, wait, this relates back to the book where I'm so in my head, I forget my body. And then I went outside and I allowed myself to feel breeze on my skin, Warm to up. look at colors, mm, yes. to touch a leaf, to the, smell a flower, my engage walks, your when I take senses. All the pictures, there's beauty to be had. And actually engaging your senses, listening to those senses, being like, smell this flower and smelling it and thinking about how good the flower smells it sounds ridiculous but engaging your senses brings you back into your body yeah i see that very clearly and now. in such an intense way that it it can really really take my very low depressive hopeless moments to like it can take it to wow life is beautiful there's beauty and and that is it's major for me to think that it's not medication, it's not therapy, it's not necessarily a relationship or success or a good school or money. It's something as simple as like touching something and feeling it and smelling something and really smelling it and being yeah. like, I have senses, I am a, I'm a functional body. And for so long, I, I didn't feel like I a functional body. I cut off all that body. stuff. I was just yeah. worried about the noise in my head. I used my body as I used my body as a drug for a very long time to escape my mind. I think that's what the eating disorder, what, right? My eating disorder exactly. too. It wasn't about my body. I didn't listen to my body about when it was in pain, mm. about when my organs were failing, about when I was hungry, about when I was tired. I used it to escape my brain. 
I used my body to escape my trauma. I used my body to re-expose myself to trauma so I can desensitize myself to trauma. I used this body, just like people have used this body, to hurt myself in many ways so that I can forget about the other ways I'm hurting. And when I take care of my body, when I put lotion on, and when I spray perfume, and when I go on walks, and when I take a hot bath, it blows my mind how much I, I am a part of this. As much as I like to detach myself from it, it's a part of me and I'm a part of it. God, I've known you for so long and I didn't know how much of this we shared. We share a lot of it. <laughs> it looks different and that's the thing. It looks different. That's the thing about this book. It brings us together, I think. Because you look at a person and you think you're so different. But then yeah, I feel alien we're from not. other people. Very much so. And that's what trauma does. It, it kind of, oh my God, I read this line. Hold on. Actually, can I find it? Please. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the othering. And you, yes, time, we're almost that time. But, but hold on. It's, it's, such a good, it's such a good thing. Um, the othering of self and others. So after trauma, the world becomes sharply divided between those who know and those who don't those who experienced trauma, those who didn't. And you convince yourself that, yeah, some traumas are different, and we even divide by trauma. It's like, well, you don't understand because you haven't been <laughs> through this. You're different. You'll never understand. We'll never be able to connect. Separation. I, separation. And this isolates you. And it's not healthy to only seek out people with trauma, but with the same trauma also. Like, you think they're the only people who can understand, but we're not that different. We're not. We're all the same, with the same brain. We're the same as fuck, sorry, um, freaking chimpanzees with their mammals. We share so much with them. And 70% of our brain we share with all mammals. 100% of the elements of our brain we share with every other human. 100% of physiological reactions, hormones, things like that we share with other humans, okay? The only thing we share more with traumatized people is the malfunctioning of those things. Yeah. But even traumatized person to traumatized person, that differs vastly. I look at my sister and I who have been through very similar experiences, almost identical. She completely shut down. Her brain activity, if you were to look at it, is probably completely different than mine. I overreact to things. We took different routes to soothing. And it made sense the way our roles were. She had to protect us. She had to shut down to become strong for us. Right. I was overreacting because I was the sensitive one. And I had a protector. I'm more of a shutter downer. Yeah, because you... I become still You become you, you become a protector. Yeah. I had a protector because you didn't have one. I had child. one. I had one. I was the youngest at the time. I got you. I could get scared and go into a corner because guess what? I could run behind someone because I had someone to run behind. You didn't have that I had option. to get strong enough to stop the thing. You had to be the person up front. And I know we're coming up on time, but I, what I want us to take... And I think before we go into it, I, I think... I'm so glad we're doing part one now because we're both in the phase in our life where we are discovering this about ourselves and going through it. And I think we should make part two, which is about the healing, when we've begun to actually implement those healing those those activities and those things in in healing ourselves and trying to heal. I feel like I'm in the foothills of that now. I'm not there yet. Wait for me, okay, and then I'll we can have part you. two. Part <laughs> two. But it's so amazing that this book goes in part one and part two. And I think in our lives, 
in a really cool way, we are still in part one of this book. Well, it's like I was talking to you about my bad habits. Like a lot of the things that I do are based on that sort of surviving trauma stuff. And like these are all my bad habits that have tenure that I talked about, mm. right? The ones that need to be like... Emeritus, the that's word. A, I don't even know if I'm saying... But I want to take them from like, you know, tenure to emeritus. Emeritus? I emeritus? I don't know. It's, oh my god, I'm obsessed I, with that I, word. I've been trying to use it this whole time. But it's time. just like, basically, I acknowledge that you are you have been very helpful, but would you please step aside while yes. other things happen? And we'll come to you if we need you. That's right. And uh, that can't be helped. No. Like, that wire is so No, uncovered. we are plastic. We can change I know, neuroplasticity. Like, okay, you're right. I Given enough time and moving farther enough away from my trauma and reattaching to my body, I can see a moment where I wouldn't be triggered. I believe in that. Yes. Or or you will be triggered less intensely for a less period of time. And maybe just be able to recognize it without the other yeah. thing. Although I, I acknowledge right now that my second responses are always the most accurate one. Like the trauma brain yeah. jumps out yeah. and then I need like one second to go, wait, I don't really feel that way. Yeah, it's because just, that's the trauma brain yeah, before, being interrupted by the prefrontal cortex. A few microseconds before yes. the, the cognitive part really right. comes on board. Like, yeah. what are my real values? And I think along with bringing us together, what this book really does is helps us, it helps us forgive one another for the trauma brain response. In ourselves. In ourselves. That's the person I need to forgive the I'm, most. <laughs> I'm learning to forgive myself, and I just think it would be really nice if other people learn that too also, because... You know, I have my sister, and I love her very much. Hi, Nina. This is about you. And Jim, I love you, too. You two are so great. Anyway, because they understand that... They understand when my trauma brain is at play. They see it. They see it. They're like, that's not Rania. That's trauma brain. Separate from Rania, because Rania is not... She wouldn't say that. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't run away like that. She wouldn't try to hurt us like that. They understand that I, sometimes my trauma brain is so afraid that it's it's trying anything to, to feel safe again. And sometimes that's the wrong thing. It's just wrong. It hurts people. But more often than not, I'm getting so much better and quicker at coming back and being like, hey, sorry, that was trauma brain. I'm so sorry. This is real brain. This is prefrontal cortex brain. This is the brain that actually knows you and loves you and wants to interact with you and wants to connect with you. I'm so sorry. And... I just think that this book will help more people get to that. Even if you have not experienced trauma, I think you should read this book because you you are going to know people who uh, have experienced one trauma. One in four. Like it's gonna come up and in like, America, and that's you, in other countries, it's probably one in two. And when you see that person that you love and they're reacting in a very strange way, and you're ready to dismiss them and give up on them, it's like if you just had this little bit of information, it's like, they don't really mean to do that at all. Yeah. Like, and they probably are suffering incredible regrets 10 minutes later. Yeah. And like when they're coming, they're not just trying to make you feel better. They, they're eating themselves up, up inside. inside. I've done that with Me? you. Yes, I know. <laughs> and, but I came back to you and I was like, Hey, you did a normal human thing and I get it. I'm not going to run away. We haven't run away from one another. You and I should have run away from one another a, a long time times. ago. A so, couple times. But we didn't. And you understand when I do my trauma brain thing and go like, Rand, get away from me. And I understand when you do your trauma brain thing and you like, you become overprotective or overbearing. And I think this book is making us better at that. And I think everybody should at least read part one. 
Okay? <laughs> because we haven't read part two yet either, so stay tuned for that. But we are coming up on time. I, I That is my spiel about how important part one of this book is and wanting to go into part two with you. And hopefully, I want everybody to get from this that we can come together, whether you have been through trauma or not, whether you know someone who has been through trauma or not, whether you acknowledge your traumas or not, this is going to bring us together, allow us to forgive ourselves and one another, be more understanding and connect on deeper levels, and hopefully grow together, hand in hand. What do you want to leave the audience with? I want to say something about love, I think. Say something about love. I think we're all lovable, right? And for a long time, I never really felt that way. And like, it's because of the argument between my trauma brain and my conscious mind. And there are so many places that are missing, like so many mismatches that it feels like, oh, I just must be forever broken. Oh, that's very loud. That is very loud. Some people need attention in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> I need attention all the time. <laughs> you know, um, and I encourage, I, I want to say that I encourage people to read the book. I feel like it has already changed me. It's like, you know, sometimes a small angle can make such a huge difference. Mm. And I'm really grateful that you suggested, almost assigned me the reading of I the book. I did assign you the reading. And I, I feel like I want to like reiterate, say, I'm assigning you, you folks that are listening, to read the book too. Because it may really help you and set you free. And that's what I would want for everyone. Like, I feel very lightened by this book. Yeah. Like it, but there were moments of challenge, as I said, right at the beginning. But it's been worth it. Yeah. And this season, season two, we started the season together about self-love. And I think this is letting us love ourselves more. It's allowing us to. And love the parts of ourselves that we thought were the reasons we're unlovable. And to all the people who tell us we're unlovable, fuck you. <laughs> that was I, don't, I, mean. I don't feel that way. I don't, I don't feel that way. But I've seen improvements in both of us. Yes. Um, not F you, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fun to say. <laughs> it's fun to say. Um, to the people who tell us we're unlovable, I assign you this reading too. Very much. That, I mean, if I could, I would. Yeah. I'm glad you can. <laughs> I, this is my podcast. I get to dictate you the do. assignment. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time for part two of The Body Keeps the Score. Stay happy, stay healthy, and we can't wait. Bye. Love you. Love you.